0: Hello, I'm uh, JP Smith, and I'm in conversation today with uh, Donald Luskin, CIO of Trend Macro, on behalf of the Independent Research Forum, the IRF. Uh, Don is uh, one of our independent research providers. He's based in Dallas, Texas. He's already done a presentation for the IRF, which a lot of institutional clients have listened to with slides, and I would commend that to you. The title of that presentation is, is the great post-pandemic bull market over? And, and the spoiler alert is that, according to Don, the answer is no. This will be more of a conversation than a sort of formal um, presentation. So uh, but I suspect we'll build up to uh, that conclusion as, as we go. And, and Don will explain exactly why in fairly uh, granular detail. So Don has been a, he's been active for even um, longer than I have in, in finance and the world of economics. He's been a presidential advisor um, and consulted on two presidential campaigns. And he's a longtime economic and market analyst on Wall Street for a number of very blue chip institutions, published regularly in the Wall Street Journal and also has written um, two books. Trend Macro has over 100 institutional uh, clients. Don, would it be fair to characterize your approach as being um relatively pragmatic and, and also um data driven? Is 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 that fair from what I've seen and heard of you so far?
1: Yeah, uh, all of the above, pragmatic especially. You know, my uh this uh research gig is kind of my my, my second career and the, the first career has all been in actual you know investment management and trading. So uh everything we do research wise is with you know very firm memories of what it takes to get the kind of information you need to make real decisions in real markets
0: and and this is i mean this is i suppose this is a truism, but this is a very sort of real time environment that we're um, that we're in at the moment isn't it in in economics and markets, given what's happened over the past 20 months. And, and also now this massive increase in retail participation in the markets as well, but partly enabled through technology. Um, and I think retail participation as a proportion of trading volumes is, is, is probably at a record. I mean, do, do, do you feel this is a very different environment to sort of analyse
1: uh, economics and markets than, say, three, three or four years ago? Well, certainly versus three or four years ago, but I, I would go go much further. Uh, in terms of retail participation, you're right, that has come back into markets in the last year or two. It's been absent uh, since the dot-com crash in you know, 1999 and 2000, that kind of drove the, the little guy out of the market. And it took practically a generation to forget that pain and come back in. But that has, you know, I've, I've been doing this a long time. And normally seeing retail investors come into the market is is something you expect. It's actually just been weird uh, that they haven't come in until now. But that one feature of markets aside I think anybody approaching Marcus today has to have a tremendous amount of respect for how absolutely unique this moment in time is, at least in terms of our careers and lifetimes. There have probably been other practitioners of the art and science of investment who operated, say, in the wake of World War II globally or in the wake of the Civil War in the United States who had to deal with this the, the amazing unique out of pattern things that happen when the world has been effectively destroyed for a while and has to reinvent itself so you get these amazing cross currents where on the one hand there's so much capital that's been destroyed uh during the war in the pre- in the previous example or, or in the pandemic the war against the virus in this example and people died uh, But at the same time, those were very rigorous events that did bring out the best in people. Necessity is the mother of invention, and there's no necessity like a war, whether it's a war against your fellow human being or a war against a virus, we're all on the same side. The kind of creativity, the kind of technology that gets created, the rapidity with which that technology can be adopted that is something that happens once every couple of generations because thank goodness those tragic events are spaced very very far apart but we have just come through one and so investors need to recalibrate this is no ordinary business cycle
0: wow okay well that's 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 quite a claim in terms of the comparison with the aftermath of the uh, second second world War, uh, maybe we could just go back a little bit before the um, pandemic um, because one of the issues I always had as a sort of non economist trained investment manager was the inability of a lot of economists to um, spot underlying trends in in productivity and i 'll just explain what I mean by that um, if, if you re- if you recall um, after the dot com crisis, particularly after the great financial crisis. Most commentators were very bearish about the U.S. and they were very bearish about um, markets as well, partly on the grounds of valuation. And one of the valuation tools that was used was the Q ratio, which was basically a sort of simple, tangible asset book value. And on that basis, the prospects for the U.S. economy were fairly dismal and particularly the prospects for U.S. equities. So the point I'm getting at is that what we found out, I think, over maybe the last 10 to 12 years is that people have underestimated the impact of intangibles even going back before the um, COVID outbreak. And, And clearly one of the things behind the rise in the US market and the outperformance has been the amount of intellectual and tangible capital. So I suppose my rather long-winded question should dot on this one relates to productivity. Do you think we've underestimated productivity even before productivity growth, even before the pandemic?
1: Yeah, there's a, a there are two questions wrapped up in one there. There's a question of underestimating it, and there's also a question of mismeasuring it. And I don't blame anybody for that. I don't have a magic wand on this, but it's very hard to measure. So, you know, here in the United States, uh, every quarter you get uh, productivity statistics from the government and they're pretty simple minded. They're just real GDP uh, per man hour. So, yes. you know, that that's uh, almost a kind of a Marxist concept that. Uh, human labor is the the only thing that counts in this world, right? And yeah. uh, as you say, there are all kinds of intangibles, uh, and there's capital. Uh, so you know, the, who even knows how to measure productivity? But you know, one one way that you know, a task of you know, trying to get your arms around a concept that's so undefinable and so slippery to begin with that has gotten even harder right now is uh, you know, we've got you know, a situation where depending on where you look, but if you look in the US, it's, you know, we're now finishing up our third quarter with gross domestic product on a, on, a, on a real inflation adjusted basis, far higher than it was before when the pandemic struck. And yet we're doing it with 5 million fewer workers. Wow! So right off, we are experiencing a productivity wave that's just, it's just off the charts, off the charts
0: and basically that was that was
1: happening before but not
0: to the not to that extent i mean the what you're saying is that covid has really accelerated and acted
1: as a catalyst to really speed this up i'm saying that when the lash of necessity was applied to us we figured out instantly how to do stuff that we didn't even know we'd ever be asked to do i mean who knew that you'd be asked to work from home for 2 years who knew that was even an option? Who knew that you could? Who knew about Zoom? I mean, it was out there. It, it was just sitting there. We, we, we could, if it's, if it's a good thing for productivity to not have to commute, to get to work from the comfort of your own home, and you know your employer may love that in a way. I mean, certain interaction effects get damaged, but on the other hand, you're, you're kind of on call 24-7 at your own home, right? Yeah. So you know, naturally, you're going to get a lot of production out of that. You could have done that all along. You just didn't know it. You know, you, you you thought your boss wanted you to come in and you know have lunch with the other mokes in the lunchroom. Well, it all it took was a world war, <laughs> and we discovered there was something else we could do. I mean, look what happened in World War II, where you know, toward the end of World War II in 1945, pretty much all the combatants were starting to field uh, the very first jet-powered fighter aircraft and they were super experimental super primitive the one that uh, germany uh put on the field in just the last couple of weeks of the war was actually made of wood so you know that's how improvised it was that was in 1945 it was just 4 years later that the british de havilland company put into the air the first de havilland comet which was the first jet powered commercial airliner So from four years to, from a a Nazi jet fighter made of wood to the first passenger jetliner, four years. And man, how that has changed the world. How that has changed the world. How is Zoom going to change the world? That's a jetliner that moves at the speed of light and you don't have to get everybody all crowded onto the same plane. I mean, you just can't believe how much of a boom that we're in, my friend.
0: Yes, yes and, and it's uh, incredible looking back to think that, that you know in Britain we actually made things that were uh, state of the art but anyway that's uh, Hey and easy. you were and you were first too. The, yes, the, yes. the Comet was the first. Astonishing we even had a big big indigenous car industry in those days but these days I suppose it's fair to say the bulk of the innovation is really coming from the US isn't it I mean and that I suppose is reflected to an extent in the outperformance of US assets really over the past you know 12 years since um, since the beginning of uh,
1: 2009 yeah well so uh, so so many of the large companies that have changed the world over the last 20 years you know have you know, originated here in the US. I don't need to name them. You you know what they are. They're, they're company names that didn't exist 20 years ago. And they're now the largest market cap companies in the world. And to the extent that they, you know, if there are other companies doing the same thing, uh, you know, I guess you can find some in China that just simply you know imitated the ones in the US and shut the US ones out of the Chinese market. And the Chinese market is large enough so you can have some large companies that, do the same imitative stuff, but yeah, the, the the U.S. has been an amazing hotbed of innovation, and you know, like like all innovation, especially when it comes to some of these uh, social media things that have that are you know a lot of what I'm talking about. Like any new technology, there are pluses and minuses. Uh, the Productivity that's been created by having a supercomputer called an iPhone that you can just carry around in your hand. And you know, just, just what just what one function of it does, just what GPS does. Oh my God, the the man hours that has freed up to, to do things that are productive instead of wandering around getting lost with a big paper map in your hand. <laughs> On the other hand, how many man hours have been lost with you know, teenagers walking around with their cell phones in front of their faces like zombies? Uh, just chatting with each other uselessly all day, so you know we we're going we're to work this out. But we have these technology empowerments,
0: yeah. And, and very little of this finds its way into, I guess, into the um, into the productivity data. I, I think one industry that you're fairly positive on on the medium long term, again with COVID very much as the catalyst, is, is biotechnology and the pharmaceutical industry. Don,
1: well, you know how how could you not be uh, healthcare in all forms. Has always been, you know, just one of the fundamental platform things that's required for human well-being. And, you know, it's just right up there with food, and uh, you know, one of the one of the great disappointments in the dot-com boom is you know, if you if you cast your memory back to the super red-hot stocks, there there were a bunch of genomics stocks. There was this uh, company that was competing with. A consortium of uh government sponsored researchers to try to sequence the human genome first, and they did it and that was a private company that was just one of the absolute high flyers during the dot com boom and what the hell happened to them you know what where where are all where are all the great you know genomic treatments that were supposed to come out of that yeah yeah well uh it took twenty years, but they're called m r n a vaccines now that's a controversial topic like Everything's a controversial topic now because everything gets politicized. But mark my words, these mRNA vaccines that are out there that were you know, created in an emergency to deal with COVID that we've been you know, experimenting with billions of people on in vaccines that have you know, essentially never, never been tried before, well, that's like the de Havilland Comet. Now, you look up the article on Wikipedia, the de Havilland Comet, uh, they just crashed all the time. people died. Okay. But it was, they were, they they were test pilots who didn't know they were test pilots. Uh, and there are going to be problems with mRNA vaccines in five years, they will cure cancer. Mark my words. Wow.
0: Yes. Okay. So just, just, um, sort of dialing back slightly. So we've got the positive side of the, um, sort of COVID pandemic. If I I can put it that way, I mean, that sounds very callous, but, um, but, but, you know,
1: looking forward, if, if, if what you say is Hey JP there is nothing callous about finding the good in the world because if there's one thing we know for sure it's that you know life is a life is a challenge and that you know hardships are put in front of you and how you solve those problems is how you move forward because we live in a culture where your solution to your problem becomes someone else's solution to their problem before they even know it's a problem. And that's what the mRNA vaccines are. This is going to be a bequest to the futurity of the human race. And you know, I'm 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 sorry that life is a veil of tears and we have to go through hardship in order to innovate. This is just another example of that. It happens every yeah. day.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think I think you, you and I probably have a, a sort of similar um, attitude in, in terms of uh, lockdown and, and the impact of, of lockdown. But whereas mine is just based more on sort of observed experience, if you like. I, th- I think you did a you and your firm did a great deal of work and mm-hmm. actually produced um, a model on the impact of uh, lockdowns. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about that? Because even though some of that now is hopefully. In the path—it sort of illustrates the way you, you go about things.
1: Sure, yeah, I'd very much like to. Well, it, it's a good example of being data-driven, where you can use data to just find out what's true, because you know we're we're constantly confronting new new challenges, new things that impact the economy and the markets, and uh, when they're brand new, people are just guessing, and as a little bit of information comes in. Uh, you start, you know, drawing conclusions. Now, you, I'm sure you remember uh, that you know one one way in which uh, your nation did a great deal of innovation at the very beginning of the COVID crisis was producing these damn models at Imperial College, which came up with these just extraordinary, extravagant, ridiculous claims of how many people were going to die, and the fear and the panic that was created by these so-called scientists, putting numbers out like that, uh, I think had a lot to do with decisions by politicians that, well, we just need to be risk averse. We we, we just can't stand the risk that these guys might be right. Well, it turns out they weren't. That's a risk return trade-off. I don't think it was a very smart one. Well, we know that in hindsight. Well, very quickly on, we started getting real data. And we started getting it uh, in different countries around the world, in different states in the United States. And you know, depending on the jurisdiction, you got a pretty high-resolution, fine grain reporting on uh, how many cases there were, how many fatalities there were. And thanks to Google and Apple, we found that we were able to compare that case data and that fatality data to the degree to which people from place to place were locked down. Now you can do a study where you say, okay, let's see uh, how the UK lockdowns worked. And we can see that the UK put this law into the place and this executive order and this commandment, and that's fine. But we don't know how people actually behaved. People might've ignored the laws or there might be other jurisdictions where there were no restrictive laws but people just restricted themselves out of caution or fear. Well, the way we tell that is with this data that comes from Google and Apple that tracks your cell phone. So we know exactly whether you stayed at home or not. Now, they don't provide it so that I know what you personally did, but I know what you know, people in your postal code did, what? what your, your, your county, your, your country in the United States, your, your zip code. I, I know that for every day of this experience. And so I can compare the number of cases and the number of fatalities that occur and compare it to how locked down people were. And wait till you hear this. It turns out that the more locked down you were, the more COVID cases there were. It's true everywhere in the world. Now, the evidence, was—you know—the the result was not statistically significant, but the correlation went the wrong way. It's a really bad place to start. Last year, in the second quarter of 2020, we caused a global depression with these lockdowns. Wouldn't it be nice if they helped just a little bit? Well, what little evidence there is from the kind of data-driven, empirical examination that I just described to you is that not only did they not help, they hurt a little bit. And if you're going to cause a depression, it has to really help. It has to jump off the page. The correlations have to go the right way. The places that were most immobilized have to have the fewest deaths and the fewest cases. Big R squared. None of that happened. Hey, you know what? Now with almost two years into this, you don't even need to open up your cell spreadsheet to do that kind of work. All you need to do is say, hey, if lockdowns worked, we'd be talking about something other than COVID right now, wouldn't we? Because we would have conquered it, but well, we didn't. It's worse than ever, just in terms of the sheer number of cases that are out there in the world. So, yeah, lockdown's failed.
0: It's um, In Europe, the debate's been endlessly about the Swedish experience, because unlike a lot of other countries, including our own, the Swedes treated their population like adults. But, but then you end up getting involved in this sort of fairly arcane business of, of comparing population densities and... Uh, you know cultures and, and obviously yeah. demographics and all, all sorts of other things. That's right. So you know you, you do tend to go around a little bit in a circle. The, the other problem here in Europe is that if you're skeptical about lockdowns, they seem to conflate that with being an anti-vaxxer, which obviously are two completely different things. So,
1: well, look. As far as I'm concerned, you have a you know people people have a right to have an opinion about all of these things, and there there's plenty of reasons for skepticism. Uh, I can tell you that in in my view, mobility is probably the first uh first sort of sufficient statistics you, you would look at, but the but the critique you gave of that one-dimensional study is is quite valid. So we did look at average age, percent of population in nursing homes, density, yeah. uh background health condition, you know, is the population generally healthy or is it you know generally sick, obesity? you know, all kinds of dimensions that people were, you know, putting out there. Uh, so, you know, because we first came up with this research, it was so counterintuitive because everybody was so sure that, oh, if you lock people down, how can an infectious disease not be controlled? It, it just has to be. Don, there must be some other factor. Well, we tried every other factor and none of it makes any difference, including the stuff you'd think would make a difference, such as average age. What? Now we know that older people tend to die more from COVID, but they don't actually tend to get sick more. So, you know, you you start looking at these at these statistics and you start getting at some, some truths that are hiding there just you know one layer below the surface. In the United States, by the way, we did find one factor that really makes a difference. It's the intensity of the use of rapid transit. Subways, commuter trains. And the like, so uh, United States, you know, I, I think is a little bit different than Europe. We are very, very automobile driven. There are only a few regions of the United States that are really intense users of trains and subways, and those are the places that just got clobbered. And the R squared on that one, it's off the charts.
0: Okay, well that's yes, that makes that makes a great deal of uh, great deal of intuitives. Sense. Um, I mean, I guess with the Omicron variant, it is t- sort of too early to uh, too early to tell, as somebody once once said in a completely different uh, context. But the initial signs seem to be that the um, the, the sort of uh, intensity of the illness um, hopefully will be will be will be lower. Um, and certainly the U.S. seems to be um, taking a markedly different and, and somewhat at the moment more relaxed approach than Europe. So right. if we just sort of park that and we look forward, what you seem to be saying very clearly, actually, is that looking forward, productivity that's emerged, that was there before and that's been accelerated through the pandemic, will, in, in, assuming that the Fed don't come in and we'll move on to this in a, in a minute yes. and the other central banks and, and sort of tighten too, too hard, too fast, that, that we can sort of grow our way out of this over time. And, and so I'm guessing by inference that you're not too concerned about um, the level of government debt at the moment, or am I, am I wrong about that?
1: Well, uh, uh, they're, they're, as an economist, uh, there, there's no reason for me to be concerned about it. Markets aren't telling me to be concerned about it. Nope. Quite the contrary. You know, markets are begging everybody to borrow more. So you know, one one comes at it. Uh, uh, for, I, I'm I'm not sure why this is, but you know, basically all all the major religions around the world uh, get involved in attaching moral and ethical ideas to debt, and uh, you know it, it's strictly prohibited in in Islam and. Uh, you know, they're, I mean, d- different cultures handle it different ways. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I know this to a moral certainty, but I, I've heard many times that in the German language, the word, the word for debt is the same word that they use for sin. Wow. Uh, Shakespeare said, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Yeah. I guess he never heard of the bond market. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know this. I think if you, you have to try very hard to pull away all of the moral claptrap associated with it and just say, look, we all borrow all the time. You know, we use credit cards, we borrow to buy a car, to buy a home, it's fine. Uh, it, it's just a form of financial intermediation. What's, what's the big deal? Uh, markets will tell us if we're doing the wrong kind of borrowing. They told us that in the mid-2000s, especially in the United States, where we did some really poorly structured lending against some really crummy collateral, and we learned our lesson. Are, are any of those warning signs happening now anywhere? new. No.
0: Well, and we've also, un, un, I mean, obviously, the inverse of the situation before the great financial crisis, we've seen this explosion in household wealth as well, In in certainly in the US and also in the UK, I, I guess, probably more of it through housing, but also a lot through, uh, through equity. And um, something I was hoping to talk to you about later in the podcast was also crypto as well, and the potential implications and impact of that. But you put those things together and what what are we looking at? We're looking at sort of three trillion dollars or something over the past twenty months. Have I got have
1: I got that right? Well, I, I'm 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 a bit, I, I you know, in 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 my business, my my clients are just begging me to uh, get all involved in crypto, and I, I'm sorry, I, I I just don't I don't get it. I don't think it's interesting. I think it's a I think it's something that governments are just going to do away with. Governments enjoy their monopoly on money. Okay, but well,
0: I've taken you—I've taken you down the crypto rabbit hole slightly earlier than than, than I'd intended to. Yeah. But let, let me just ask you one thing, as an economist, because this this puzzles me: is crypto okay. more inflationary potentially? And, and and generally looking at this explosion in household wealth and assets that we've seen, how, how much, if any, of that will find its way into inflation? So I, I guess we start discussing inflation here now. Well, why should why should well, okay, any so of it? To, I mean, so I, in the past, I, I, I get that. And I get the velocity of money has stayed relatively low. Uh, but crypto, the, the, the sort of distribution of crypto in terms of age and income cohorts does seem to be a little bit different to equity. It seems to be younger and, and perhaps even lower income um, people as well, although that may be mostly the age effect with, with the millennials being so heavily involved.
1: Well, that, that that's a very smart observation, yeah. And,
0: and do those people have a higher propensity to spend? And it, and, and I, it's very difficult to spend something when it's fluctuating by 30% in, in two weeks, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, how you do the One wealth. Day. And you've got to have buyers as well to take it off you. So maybe net-net it doesn't have any impact. But I was interested in what your view on that might be.
1: Uh, I think net-net it doesn't have any impact. I, okay. I, I agree with you. Okay, I thought you I, might. I think, I think it's all just kind of a... It's just a sideshow. Yeah,
0: yeah. I remember working for Morgan Stanley in the late 90s and a lot of the senior management there were quite concerned about um, the, uh, the the potential for the wealth that was being created to, to come into inflation and for governments to actually step in and maybe move into a more redistributionary mode. But of course, that really, really hasn't happened yet. Uh, but maybe moving away from that um just looking and you did a very detailed dissection of the invest, inflation data in your presentation which I found incredibly useful actually um do, do, do you maybe want to go through that briefly again and, sure. and just highlight sure. why you know you're quite unlike the consensus now and the consensus has only just really emerged on this um, your view is that the inflation problem is likely to be transitory, and certainly the bond market's action over the since you since you said have been saying this is, is, seems to suggest that you, that you're right, right about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so funny when you say the consensus, because what better consensus is there than the bond market?
0: <laughs> well, but that's that's funny, isn't it? It's absolutely funny because the bond market doesn't reflect what people are saying, and maybe it's because there's so many people that didn't spot the spike up in inflation while the pandemic was going on uh, which to me actually seemed, seemed to be fairly obvious yeah and, me too and then switched to i mean you know you've got some pretty prominent people i don't know if you saw the article by mohammed el arian um, and also of course you've got larry summers as well who's who's uh, and, and they've both been very very aggressive on on this uh, on this view and in fact if anything they're becoming more aggressive about it
1: yeah well look uh I I, I, I I was raised not to, you know, speak ill of my competitors, uh, but I can tell you that it's a, a business reality uh, that a way to promote yourself as a sort of a public intellectual is to just latch on to the latest thing that scares people. And... I, I think I, I, you know, we we as a professional matter just simply don't do that. It, it's it's just wrong, and I think the, the people I think the people you named are are just jumping on a on a bandwagon and probably don't even believe what they're saying.
0: Okay, okay. So I, I mean, you spelled out exactly why you think that the uh, impact is is likely to be transitory. Uh, is there not a risk though that because the, the Fed is ultimately, and I think you've said this yourself, a, a sort of political animal and comes under grow and and of course. Political consensus is like the, uh, you know, is like like the public intellectuals in a sense. Right. It tends to happen post hoc, you know, looking That's in right. the rear view rear view mirror. Um, there is a lot more concern about inflation. Is there a risk? Do you think that the Fed will will overreact to this?
1: Yeah, I, I I think there is a risk, and it and it's particularly intense just by terrible terrible luck, which is that Fed Chair Jay Powell has been renominated by President Biden, but now he has to go through Senate confirmation. And you know the uh, the the you know, people in the Senate and the House and in the White House, you know they're even worse than Larry Summers and Mohamed El-Arian, which is you know they they take whatever idea is out there in the public domain at the moment and they attach it to whatever their political ambitions are. And you know you 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 see it with everything. You see it with you know for instance with vaccines. I mean you know th- things that just there's just no reason why they should be politicized, but they are. And inflation is now getting politicized too. And you know one of the uh, subtle reasons for it is that uh, the White House and the Democrats who very narrowly control the US Congress, if at all, are trying to push through another gigantic spending bill. And whether this is true or not, it's certainly the conventional wisdom in economics that you know giant government spending bills make inflation worse, not better. Yeah. And so uh, they're putting a lot of pressure on the Fed to take responsibility for this inflation, both in terms of saying, yeah, yeah, we, we caused it with all that QE. And well, we had to, it was an emergency, but we admit we caused it. And so if we caused it, we can fix it just by reversing those things. Well, they didn't cause it and they can't fix it. So if Jay Powell wants to get reconfirmed by the Senate in January, though, at tomorrow's FOMC meeting, he's going to have to pretend. Yeah. So this is going to be like one of those struggle sessions in communist China, where wow. you know some capitalist gets brought into a room and beaten with a rubber hose and has to confess his sins for you know, crimes he didn't even commit. That's what Powell's going to do tomorrow. So they're going to announce a uh, an acceleration of tapering of asset purchases, and they're going to do it in the name of fighting inflation. Uh, thank God that is something that just doesn't even matter. Now, For some people, this is going to be a controversial thing to say, but my humble opinion, uh, I believe that the track record over the last 20 years of asset purchases is absolutely crystal clear. This is another one of those things where all you have to do is look at the data. Every single time the Fed has done asset purchases, it has done the opposite of what they promised. They always say, oh, well, this will make long-term yields go down, and that'll stimulate growth. Every time they've done it, every time, without exception, yields have gone up. Then every time they stop, the big fear is, oh, my God, you're not controlling the yield curve anymore. Now yields are going to go up. No. Every time they stopped, yields went down. So in other words, it's at best an economic irrelevancy. So if they stop, you know, yeah, I might, let's just say they do their tapering so fast that they just simply stop. They just stop buying tomorrow. Well, that would shock people. But other than the psychological shock, that would have no impact at all. None. No, but you've
0: but but okay so psychological but but you've probably put your finger on it there haven't you done I mean the impact of this is is psychological if if you go into QE what happens is risk appetite rises and risk, appetite, risk asset risk assets so equity uh, crypto now do do quite well um, and they go up and therefore I guess you have the sort of inverse effect on. On yeah. bonds, which I, I say is, is, is counterintuitive. Yeah. And particularly, as, as I understand, the Fed owns, what, 30% of the bond market? Is that, is that correct?
1: Well, it, what, what, I, it doesn't matter what, what percent it is. You know, it, but the, you, you, you're very, very close. You know, you're getting warm. You're getting close to the correct answer here. <laughs> That's good. It, it, it is psychological. But depending on where the market is from time to time, Psychology either matters or it doesn't. Now, psychology really mattered in two thousand eight and two thousand and nine because the psychology then was pathology, where everybody was selling everything. It really mattered in the second half of twenty twenty again when people were selling everything. So you go back to classics of monetary doctrine like Walter Badgett's Lombard Street, and you know that was this fantastic chronicle of all the things that the Bank of England did to stem British financial panics throughout the nineteenth century. And the doctrine that comes out of that was, well, you know, every twenty years the banking system blows up and markets blow up, and a central bank just has to step in and be the adult in the room and just buy risky assets. Now, you can see in the United States, QE is, you know, consists of buying treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Those aren't the riskiest assets in the marketplace, but they're not they're not riskless. They have duration risk, prepayment risk, credit risk. And when the Fed buys five trillion of them, that takes a lot of risk units out. That really matters when there's a panic. But doing the opposite doesn't matter when there's not yeah. a panic. No, I- right. You have to have the panic as a pre-existing condition to create relevance. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean people's initial.
0: I I was lucky enough to be working for a, for a Swiss. Um, Bank Swiss Swiss Private Bank. I was at the institutional investment arm of it, and when the Fed started doing QE,
1: I'm trying. Was that was that autumn 2008 from memory? I can't. They announced it in 2008, and then the very first asset purchases were the first day of 2009. That's right.
0: That's right. And all everybody, all the senior people in the bank were very concerned because, and I think everybody in in Geneva, basically in Zurich, thought that this was going to be massively inflationary. And of course, it turned yep. out to be no such thing at all. So yep. people's preconception about yep. what QE is, as you said, has turned out to be completely right. wrong. And in some cases, right. you know, 180 degrees wrong. So yeah, I think uh, exactly. And, and you, I think
1: you've- so. So what that tells me is that as we, you know, we're we're looking at something that we haven't seen in the last 20 years, or for that matter, the last 40. You know, which are these particular high rates of inflation. So I'm not saying that inflation doesn't exist statistically, but it's pretty silly to blame QE on it when you know the entire history of QE is a disinflationary history.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let me let me just throw something else at you um, in terms of uh, in terms of inflation. Um, and I you know I have to be careful here because it's an asset class. I must admit I tend to be uh, almost permanently bearish of and and name, namely commodities. Actually, one of the interesting things about the commodity complex again, it's a bit like the bond market. Everybody's been bearish on bonds. Bond yields have been going down. Everybody's been bullish on commodities. Every commentator I hear is bullish on Mm -hmm. a secular and also on a momentum basis on commodities. And yet when we look at some of the biggest commodities, uh, they've they've gone down. I mean, I believe oil now is what, 15 to 20 percent off its highs. Natural gas in the U.S. Mm -hmm. has been annihilated. Lumber. Mm Um, you know iron ore we, we, we can go on with this right but i think you yeah. um at trend macro actually have um, an energy service and obviously one of the areas people have focused on is, is shale and, and particularly in europe we have this business of the old economy underinvestment in the old economy largely for esg related reasons and also the fact yeah, that the cost here. of capital um you know for these companies has, has been mispriced so do, do you see a sort of structural bull market for any of these commodities, particularly um, for oil? And if so, what, what, what impact is that likely to have on the broader economies going forward?
1: Yeah, it's, boy, it is, oil in particular is super tricky because oil's main purpose in life is as a mobility fuel for automobiles, jet planes, and ships. And the hallmark of the pandemic lockdown was immobility. So of everything that shut down that shut down the hardest. It's been the slowest to come back. Uh, global crude oil consumption is still three percent below where it was when the pandemic began, and that's a significant recovery. But you know we're more than a year and a half into that, and uh, you know world GDP has recovered considerably, but world mobility hasn't. We are simply producing more units of output per unit of mobility than we thought possible, and that's part of the productivity story. But that means that oil has become a little bit irrelevant or at the margin irrelevant, certainly not entirely irrelevant. Now, people often say, well, what about all the electric cars and all that stuff? Well, you know, maybe 25 years from now we can have that conversation, but that doesn't explain one penny of the oil price right now, right? I mean, it's, there, there aren't enough electric cars in the world to make any difference to that. So, uh, what we're looking at here is a Bigger problem on the demand side than on the supply side. So demand is coming back grudgingly. It is coming back, thank yeah. God. But as it does, it is facing uh, OPEC. And I'm not even saying OPEC plus. I'm not even going to include uh, Russia here. OPEC right now has spare capacity that could be brought online anywhere from you know one month to nine months out to accommodate the former high global consumption in oil even if one additional barrel never comes out of Texas. Now, at the same time, we just got the statistics from the U.S. government last night and uh, Texas oil production is now the highest in history. Yeah, yeah. So for, for all this talk that's out there where people are saying for any number of reasons, because of ESG, because of the Biden administration putting sand in the gears, you know, these are all true stories. You know, They are all cutting against levels of production and exploration that could have happened. But we can't judge this against some hypothetical if there were no ESG movement or someone else were president. The reality is oil production is still booming. And even if it weren't, OPEC's got this covered for the next two years. So there is there is not a shortage problem. There, so people who are prattling about oil going to you know 160 or something... Well, you tell me the story of why that's going to happen. Now, by the way, to link this back up to inflation, which I think is how you got on this topic. In the U.S., at least, the rise in the oil price over the last year explains half the excess inflation. And that's because oil has doubled over the last year. In fact, if you take it back 18 months, oil in the United States had a negative price. I mean, I don't even know how you compute that. At any rate, gasoline prices are up 50% because oil has doubled. So for oil to make the same contribution to inflation a year from now, looking back as it's made right now, looking back a year, oil would have to be at 160. Now, Tell me a story. Why is oil going to be at 160? Why? Why? It's possible. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. All kinds of things are possible.
0: Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I I get that. There's one other issue as well. A big big issue out there now is uh, what's happening with natural gas in in Europe. And um, mm. unlike the US, prices are high. They've gone up sixfold, um, and and they stay high. I own a, a tiny, tiny part a 19th actually of a sort of mansion in the south of the Lake District in England, and we've just rolled over our wholesale gas contract um, at five times the rate we did the year before. Yes. Uh, this hasn't hit most consumers yet because most consumers are buying through the big energy companies here and in mm-hmm. Europe, and obviously they have hedging policies, and mm-hmm. obviously as well they, they don't buy wholesale, so a proportion of their bills is actually consists of uh, various other items but still there's an enormous shock waiting for european including uk consumers further down the road and and i just wonder if you couple that with what's happening in china and the chinese economy with the problems in the property sector that are taking place and the very complex interlinkages in the chinese economy whether another reason for why um bond yields have been coming down recently mm-hmm. is is that without really people having articulated yet this yet because this is the way markets work that the markets mm-hmm. telling us that growth outside the US is actually going to be surprisingly weak as as we look mm-hmm. ahead. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if you'd you'd buy in into that idea much, John.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know how much of a. I guess the, the I do buy into it. In fact, the, the the only critique I would make in the way you framed your question is that if bond if if bonds are pricing it, then you can't really call it a surprise.
0: Well, it's true actually. It's a rhetorical. It's a surprise in terms of the rhetoric that comes out of the market, right? But yes. Yeah
1: exactly, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and they that seems to be always surprised. <laughs> and This is emerging it's as really a theme,
0: part. actually, isn't it? That um, you know, I mean, your sort of, uh, as I say, more granular and data-driven approach is is, is is comes out with different conclusions to the ones that we see if we turn on, um, you know, I. I some of the big information providers let's say, and the sort of five ten minute interviews with fund managers yeah. and, and as you say public intellectuals
1: well I can't urge you strongly enough just to turn those things off and don't don't waste your you, know, you not only waste your time by listening to that but it actually degrades you it just it just teaches you ways of thinking that are not helpful but i I do want to uh, the natural gas thing is you know that is sort of shocking and and surprising because there is such a global abundance of it uh it it's gonna sort itself out, but that doesn't mean that people aren't going to enter into pretty long term contracts that are painful, like you've described. But let me let me turn to the question of China, and especially with the word surprising there, um, there there is a little mini industry in the investment world of you know these China bears, you know like you know my fellow my fellow Texan Kyle Bass is a famous one, and they've been predicting just the complete implosion of the Chinese economy and the Chinese civilization for you know over ten years, and it's just sort of amazing to them at least that it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. Um, it just seems like it's always on the verge of, ver- verge of one crisis too many. And so now the Evergrande thing is the is the latest narrative. I just want to say that this and this goes to one of the themes that I, th- I think you said you wanted to talk about. One of the things that made the period from 2000 to 2020 a relatively low inflation period was putting China on the global economic circuit board and doing a global labor arbitrage with them uh, using one of the great unmeasured forms of productivity, which is managerial expertise to create supply chains that uh, created a true, true global web of just-in-time delivery with, with China as the most important note of it. Now, you don't have to imagine that China is going to have some kind of internal shock event to think that that trend is over, because like everything else in this world, there's this little old thing called diminishing returns, that once you've done as much as you can with China, you've done as much as you can with China, and there ain't no more to do. And well, we don't have to say it's absolutely done, that no Western company will ever put up another factory or move production to China. But the rampant rate at which that was done in order to create costs, uh, create efficiencies and cut costs, that is well in the rearview mirror. That mine has been mined out. There's no more gold in it, right? So You don't have to imagine China going to hell to say that we're not going to get that kind of free get out of jail card on inflation. That doesn't mean we're going to have hyperinflation. That doesn't mean you're going to have a problem. It just means that inflation might run on average, I don't know, 30 basis points hotter over the next 20 years than it did over the last 20 years. That's all. Because, you know, it it took 20 years for that to happen. So, you know, that's, that's my view on China. And that goes hand in hand. So, so what does that mean for China itself? That means that no tree grows to the sky. Yeah. That means that just like all, like, like Japan and the, you know, the nations of Europe that were so destroyed during World War II and took decades to get back up to being really you know the superstars of the developed world that they are today, you had decades of 10% plus GDP growth. And then it just stopped because a tree can only grow so high. That doesn't mean the tree dies. doesn't mean it falls over and kills you. Maybe the tree keeps growing, but just keeps getting thicker. It's not going to get higher. And that's really what's going on in China. And rampant growth covers a multitude of sins. You can get away with things like Evergrande when it's just getting swallowed by how much richer everybody's getting every year. And those things are coming home to roost. Now, is this going to be the final, you know, Kyle Bass conflagration in China? I don't think so, because don't forget, every bank in China is owned by the government. So if a private company like Evergrande defaults to the Chinese government, that's the algebraic equivalent to the Chinese government bailing them out, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Because the Chinese government lent lend them all the money to begin with. So default equals forgiveness in that unique economy
0: yeah i think i mean the only the only thing I'd, I'd I'd maybe say about that is china's contribution on the margin to global growth has has been falling in terms of expectations prior expectations since about 2010 so so maybe that's another reason to be a little bit cautious on on commodities exactly uh, you know i confess to being a perma bear on china not necessarily a a crisis uh, predicting a crisis but just in terms of that incremental effect and and maybe we're just going to see more of the same and as you say it's not going to be that dramatic but uh, on the margin it just means that that inflation might be a bit higher growth might be a little bit lower and and I guess as well and this takes us on to yeah. um to equities um, companies um valuations um, for some of the big U.S. companies as well, um, maybe their prospects in—I mean, it's always been difficult, as we know, for companies to make money in China, but but maybe it's going to be even more difficult going forward than than it has been.
1: Uh, indeed, uh, the in the U.S. the poster children for the you know super mega cap overvalued stocks—they've uh, actually been substantially shut out of China. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, so you know that they've already swallowed that bitter pill. Uh, So for them, I guess you could say it's all upside. But you know, there's the other thing that I think has to be said about China is uh, under its current leadership, it is rolling back on its pro-capitalist, pro-property rights reforms that made the miracle possible. And it's always been difficult, but it's getting to be impossible for an investor with a straight face to say. Now, why, again, should I be making an equity investment in a place with no property rights? I mean, it's a fiduciary issue.
0: Yeah, no, governance, governance has been much neglected and people go on about ESG, but some of the most fundamental governance issues have been completely ignored, obviously, because people have been in pursuit of a good narrative. Oh, and for God's top. sake. I mean, in China, the G is the least of it. How about the E and the S? Yeah, no, 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 it's true, it's true. It's, um, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting because obviously you've had a lot of very high, again, very high profile people from Wall Street firms like BlackRock actually come out recently and reiterate a sort of commitment to China and actually advise investors to step up and buy. And it, it's a problem because cosmetically now the market's actually there is actually starting to look quite, uh, quite cheap. But wh- whether that counters these negative factors you've discussed is, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult one now, I think. So moving on,
1: there are other opportunities. uh, There are other opportunities,
0: and so so just moving on to that. I mean, you've you've been, I think, um, it's fair to say, pretty pretty sanguine about the U.S. equity market in particular um, over the past uh, few months. In fact, maybe sanguine is an understatement. Maybe bullish would be a better very much so way of describing it. And I think you have, uh, you know, you use an equity risk premium model. I think that's similar to the Fed model, right, Don? And, you know, I think that's given, um, from what you were saying, pretty reliable signals, not not just in the current cycle, but in previous cycles
1: as well. I mean, do you want to say a little bit about that
0: and what it's telling us sure, now? Sure,
1: sure. Well, the equity risk premium model we use, uh, I, I, I've been using it since before it came to the Fed and started being called the Fed model. It was, it was uh, invented in the late 70s at Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco, believe it or not, because back then that was a... Uh, hotbed of financial innovation where index funds and you know all just the whole substructure of modern investing was created at a crazy little bank in San Francisco and the uh, this simple old equity risk premium model that I've been using now for 40 plus years was actually invented by Nobel Prize winner William F sharp of the capital asset pricing model yeah. and it's just the simplest thing in the world and hasn't changed in over 40 years and boy does it get it right when you need it to. Uh, it, uh, on March 23rd, 2020, it gave a buy signal for equities, only one basis point different than its level on March 9th, 2009. Wow. So in terms of us equities over the last decade, plus, those are the two dates in history that made or broke your career, March 9th, 2009, March 23rd, 2020, this model nailed them both with the same reading within one basis point. Now, I don't hold it out as a market timing model. It's a relative valuation model between stocks and bonds. And when it's near its mean, it is a mean reverting model. So when it's near its mean, it's not giving you any information at all. But when it's a long way away from its mean, it's shouting at you to bet on mean reversion. Where do you think it is right now? Right at its mean. So nothing, move along. Nothing, nothing to see as far as you're concerned on the valuation. Yeah, side. nothing, nothing, no big opportunity. No, no, and on the other hand, nothing to yeah. be terrified of.
0: It's funny actually. I was trying, I was thinking about how how that, which part of that might you know might make equities look um, poorer value, if you like, and and maybe everybody's looking at the bond side and they're all looking for bond yields to to rise, and therefore that makes mm-hmm. equities more expensive. Mm-hmm. But the big surprise, of course, would be. Going forward, if earnings disappointed and, you know, we saw a negative surprise on the earnings side, but it doesn't sound from what you're saying as though you you, you think that's particularly likely. I must say maybe I'd be a little bit more concerned about earnings outside the US, which I think account for about a third, don't they, of the total S&P revenues, something like that anyway.
1: Well, f- fair enough, but uh, our our model, for what it's worth, I mean, I don't I don't mean to sound defensive, but our our model is driven by uh, consensus bottom up yeah. forward earnings, and it's not just domestic earnings. You know, we're we're looking at you know the five hundred companies in the S and P five hundred, and you know the consensus is considering all their earnings, doesn't matter where geographically it's it sourced. Yeah, no, no, sure,
0: sure. So um I and and do you have any um thoughts as as to how to invest because obviously it's one of those things I mean the simplest thing to do in 2009 was the best thing right it was just to buy US index funds not to buy everybody wanted to buy alternatives they wanted to buy hedge funds they wanted to buy emerging market mm-hmm. funds they wanted to buy anything that preserved wealth because people were desperate to 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 to, to, to minimize their downside after the great financial crisis and actually the way to do it with with minimal expenses as well was just to buy a us index fund s&p index fund i mean what what mm-hmm. what sort of environment do you think we do you think we're looking perhaps at a return to more active management where if what you're saying about uh, innovation is is true you know, maybe maybe are companies out there, but but as you know, a lot of them tend to go through private equity, and they tend to be IPO'd, and they tend to be quite expensive. If if you can talk about expensive for companies that have uh very very few earnings, so how how do you what do you yep. think is the best way of going about investing in the sort of market we're in at the moment? Well, uh,
1: this is that that question is very different de- depending on uh, on the audience for listening to my answer, right? Uh, I'm you know i I come from I come from that wells Fargo experience in you know in in the eighties where index funds were invented and the reason why that story is so compelling is that if you're artificially constrained to dealing with public markets, that's probably what you want to do because like you're like you're what you really just said by the time something's in the public markets it's already been picked over, and active management it has is Hardly obsolete, you know. It's gone through the its greatest period of wealth creation in history. It's just called private equity. It's just called venture cap. So, you know, if you're just some you yep. know ordinary schmo, you know, investing in a retirement account and public securities, those things are completely shut to you. So, you know, it's not that active management sort of doesn't work anymore. It works better than ever. But you have to have you have to do it yourself or have access to it. So, uh, if you can do that, do that. Uh, presuming you have some knowledge, if you can't do that, then you know, what our our style is is to look at countries, look at sectors, look at industry groups, look at styles, and think of those as investable aggregates, where individual securities mean relatively little, in unless they. Just happened. I mean, I guess you say Evergrande, for example, is an individual company that's worth learning something about because of what it says about the whole rest of the world. But it's not a question of Evergrande or not Evergrande itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, sure. Sure. I think that's, uh, I think those are. That's absolutely right i mean i'm you know I'm really scratching my head at the moment to to tell you the truth Don. i mean i, I you know i, I suspect the u s probably will still be the best best place um and you know as a veteran of emerging markets i'm I'm really struggling to find i mean sure some of them look cosmetically cheap, yeah. but my goodness me the the issues and um, the sort of lack the governance the lack of any structural reforms in in the vast majority of of countries, so it's 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 difficult yeah. at the moment. Well, I, think.
1: I I would like to put out one thing just for people to consider, and uh, this doesn't have a good um, any particular time horizon associated with it, which makes it difficult. But um, I think w- one of the hallmarks of this pandemic depression we went through and the recovery from it is how uneven the re- the recovery has been between sectors within a country and then between countries themselves. Because different countries have had different lockdown policies, they've had different responses to the different waves of, of COVID that have come through. And those have gone a long way to determining the you know the the time rate of of recovery. So you've got the global economy out of sync with itself. That's one of the reasons why you have these global supply chain problems, because All it takes in a supply chain is for one company in it, one country in it, to be locked down. So, where I'm getting at with this is, the U.S. has a very flexible economy. We came out of our lockdowns pretty early. It's different across the different U.S. states, but heck, one of one of the advantages of the United States is it's a it's a 50 country free trade zone. And so, Texas comes out uh, really quick. California comes out last, but you know, at least somebody did here. But where i'm getting at here is probably next year sometime certainly the year after that this whole covid thing and all the lockdowns associated with it all the economic disruptions associated with it will just be a bad memory and you'll start forgetting about it and then maybe you know it's something you'll you'll tell your children in 10 years but what that means is that the opportunities are in the places that are the last to catch up so one of the reasons the U.S. has done so well is because it got out of the gate first. So that doesn't mean it's going to continue to do the best, right? Because yeah. the ones that one by one liberate themselves from all this COVID lockdown madness, they're the ones with the big output gaps. They're the ones with the you know, airplanes that you can get in the sky, the uh, waitresses that you can get back in the restaurants. That's where the growth is going to come from now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And certainly in the past, it's paid to be contrarian in quite a lot of these countries as well. So that's, that's kind
1: of how I see it. And I, 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 this, this could, this has been, this has been a frustrating trade that that has required more patience than I would have told you a year ago. But that doesn't mean I'm turning away from it conceptually, you know, in a way, a a thing that disappoints you by how long it takes to get you there. That means, oh boy, it's primed to happen right now. (laughs) <laughs> or at least you tell yourself that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Look,
0: Don. I think that's a great note to uh, to end on, um, and uh, sort of quite quite optimistic as well. And you, you've given, I think, a much more upbeat uh, resume than most commentators would 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 give. And I think that's I think that's refreshing, and it's been right as well. So. Anyways, uh, you know. Let's, let's hope that it continues to be right. Um, do get in touch with the Independent Research Forum, please, if you're interested in Don's work, as, as you should be. Um, so uh, thank you, Don, and uh, thanks for listening.